Good morning, Sound City. How are you doing? You guys good? My name's Aaron. Uh, if we've not yet had a chance to meet, one of the pastors here. Really glad to see you. You know, today as we, as we dive into God's Word, um, I hope you understand that when we gather together like this, there really is nothing more important that we could do with our time than to hear the words of God. Uh, I remember the, there's, a, there's a story where, where a bunch of people had left Jesus, a bunch of the so-called disciples had left Jesus because they were upset by some of the things he was teaching. And at one point, Jesus turns to Peter and his other disciples and says, are you gonna leave too? And Peter says, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And just especially in light of uh, the recent events over the weekend with, with bombings in Paris and uh, attacks in, in Beirut and other parts of the world, um, we know that the world is a very broken place and I am convinced that the only hope for humanity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are lots of other practical things, lots of conversations we can have, but the only hope for humanity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we do today in opening up the scriptures is no simple, is no light thing. And so I pray and hope uh, today that as we open the word of God, that you let these words impact your heart deeply. We are in Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 7 through 19. What I'd like to do is I'd like to read straight through our passage for today, and then we'll pray, and we'll spend some time unpacking uh, this warning passage, the second such warning passage that we've now come across in the book of Hebrews. Read along with me if you would. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church. God, we thank you for your word. God, I pray today that your word would do a, a deep and penetrating work in our hearts. God, in the, in the next chapter in Hebrews 4, it says that your word is, is like a double-edged sword that, that pierces down and, and cuts so deep it even divides joint and marrow. And God, I pray that your word would do that work in us today. As we look at this warning passage, as we look at this, this hard word, God, I pray, um, I pray that we would not get uh, only caught up in all of the theology of it, these concepts, these ideas, things that we do need to unpack and understand and study. God, I pray that our hearts would be engaged, that we would see the love of God poured out at the cross of Jesus. We would see the grace that we have been shown. We would see the goodness of our Savior and we would respond with joy and with love and with obedience. I pray for myself, God, that you'd help me to only teach your truth today. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today that we would have soft and teachable hearts. And I pray that we would all see a picture of Jesus, high, exalted, risen, the hope of the nations, we pray all of this in his name. And everybody said, amen. All right, it's confession time. It's confession time. You guys know what a fad is? 
Uh, I'm not going to embarrass anyone in particular, but quick show of hands, how many of you have ever gotten caught up in a fad, something that's gone by quickly, and you, you know you have, right? There's, there's all different types of fads, right? There's, there's fashion fads, fashion fads, you know, like the mullet, or bell-bottom pants, or hammer pants, or, yeah, or skinny jeans, right? A, a fashion sort of fad. There's, there's diet fads. Fad diets, you know, you're only supposed to eat this and not eat that, right? Things like the South Beach diet or the Zone. Anybody remember in the 90s, the grapefruit diet? That was a real thing. Or my personal favorite, the Atkins diet, also known as the eat all the bacon and eggs that you can find diet. That's a good one, right? How about certain products? Certain things all of a sudden are just selling, uh, you know, millions and millions of copies, uh, millions and millions of, of sales like a pet rock, or a digital pet. Anybody remember the digital pet? Like a little plastic circle with a battery and don't you kill your pet. Ignore your friends. Keep that fake thing alive. My personal favorite of, of the product fads was Beanie Babies. I actually knew a woman who <laughs> invested a ton of money in Beanie Babies because at the time they thought that they would just gain in value forever and you could probably retire and live in a mansion somewhere off the sales of Beanie Babies, right? I actually saw an article on social media a day before yesterday about a couple who was getting divorced and actually had to have a judge sit there and split up the Beanie Babies for them. Divorce is tragic, but that one made me chuckle a little bit. What about movements, fad movements? Something that, that just all of a sudden comes out of nowhere, right? Occupy Wall Street, the emerging church, red cups at Starbucks, right? Here's the thing about fads. A fad kind of appears out of nowhere, skyrockets in popularity, but then almost as quickly just disappears and people move on with their lives. Except for the mullet. Some people need to let that go, right? That's the thing about fads. They, they come and they go very quickly. People get very excited, but it doesn't last. How many of you know that following Jesus cannot be like one of those fads? Jesus never intended for his disciples, Jesus never intended for his followers to live a life of fandom chasing after a fad. In fact, Jesus is the one that said things like, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, how often? Daily and follow me. Jesus is the one who said things like, if, if anyone puts their hand to the plow like they want to get to work with me, but then they, they look back, they're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the one that said, hey, other teachers are going to rise up, other messiahs, and they're going to be very attention-getting. And people say, look, there they are. Go follow them. He says, don't pay attention to them. Jesus is the one who taught the parable of the four soils in which, in which a farmer goes out to plant seeds and there's, there's four different types of soils. One of the soils is really hard. It's the path. Nothing really happens. It doesn't grow. Two of the types, however... The seed falls on the soil and it springs to life. But whether it's because of short roots or the sun or the, the weeds that choke it out, it, it, it's, it's short-lived. It, it comes to life for a brief little while, but in the end, it, it dies off. And Jesus says that those types of plants are pulled up and thrown into the fire. Their end is to be burned. He says the, the, the type of soil that you want your heart to be is the type of soil where the seed goes into the ground, the roots go down deep, the plants grow, and then they reproduce and they bear much fruit. The life of a Christian is not a short spurt of intensity. The life of a Christian is a whole life endeavor. It's been said, I think rightly, the, the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. The writer of Hebrews here is wanting to really reinforce this point in, in, the, in the ears and the minds, the hearts of his, of his listeners. The author of Hebrews, a few chapters ago, had used the positive examples of Jesus and Moses. He talked a lot about how Jesus and Moses both were faithful. They were very faithful to what God called them to do. They never turned away. They never chose their own way. Well, Moses did eventually, but, but they were faithful. They're good examples of faithfulness. The writer of Hebrews put forward some good examples. In today's passage, this warning passage, he puts forward the people of Israel as a negative example, one that we are to learn from. And he actually wants us to put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites, the people who had left Egypt. Think about this. They had been in slavery for 430 years. And then, like an explosion, God does this, this amazing work 
where he brings the 10 plagues on Egypt and he frees the people of Israel. They go out through the Red Sea. They get to witness uh, the, the sea parting and they get to walk through on dry land. And then as they turn around and the armies of Pharaoh are chasing, the waters close back over and kill the armies of Pharaoh. Do you realize that the events of the Exodus, all of these plagues, the, the leaving, the Red Sea, all of that happens within the span of a couple of months? Maybe a year at the longest. Scholars kind of debate, but think about how much of a dramatic explosion that was. Here we are for hundreds of years being slaves and then in a blink of an eye, God does this remarkable work and we all get to go free. You think they were excited? You think they were, they were bought in? At least for a little while. At least they were for a little while. <clears throat> Some people have a similar experience when they become Christians it's a very explosive experience. Those of you who are here this summer, you may have heard when my, when my dad was here and he preached, he shared some of his testimony that he had, he had not grown up knowing Jesus, had grown up in a non-Christian home. Uh, in his high school years, he uh, got into the drug and party scene and spent uh, about a decade of his life uh, using and abusing his, his body on, on various chemicals. And then uh, get this, the midwife who, at who attended my birth shared the gospel with him and my parents were instantly uh, delivered of over a decade of substance abuse. A pretty miraculous story. They, they, they met Jesus and it was like everything was different. Their whole lives were different. But in my time as a Christian, I've also seen people who get very excited about Jesus. They get very excited about this message of grace, this message of love. They respond. Maybe they, maybe they come forward, they pray with somebody. Maybe they fill out a card at a rally. Maybe they have goosebumps at a, at a, a camp. But then over time, you watch them get less and less interested in the things of God. They read their Bible less and less. They, they attend church services or community group less and less. And before too long, you look at them, you think, I, I don't know if anybody could actually tell if they were really a follower of Jesus or not. Unfortunately, that's not the case with my parents. But how many of you know somebody like that? How many of you have known somebody in your life where at one point there was a profession of faith? At one point there was this excitement. Maybe they had a dramatic encounter with, with Jesus. Maybe they had a, a goosebumps type of moment, but over the long haul, it just doesn't look like there's, there's much going on. Here's, here's the main proposition for today. Here's the big idea. Salvation is proven by a lifetime of faithfulness to Jesus. Salvation is proven, not in a momentary profession, not in a goosebumps moment. I'm not against a profession or goosebumps moment, by the way. But those things don't prove our salvation. A lifetime of faithfulness to Jesus does. And we need to be careful not to repeat the same mistake that these Israelites made. And if you are a Christian, if you are part of the people of God, this is, this is a sermon that is particularly for you. Why do I say that? Because, because I want you to look. We're going to take these verses out of order a little bit today. I want you to look at verse 16. Let's go to the last chunk because I want you to see the nature of rebellion. Look at, look at what the author of Hebrews says first. He says this. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he, God, provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The author of Hebrews has asked three questions, three parallel questions to get your wheels turning. He wants you to understand that the people that God is angry with, the people that God is pronouncing judgment upon were, quote unquote, the people of God. See, there's a big difference between opposition and rebellion. Anybody can oppose you or I. Anyone can be against you. Anyone can say, I don't like you. I don't want to listen to you. I'm against you. But do you know who can rebel? Your children, your staff, those who are under your care, those who are under your leadership. Do you see the difference? There's a big difference between opposition. Look at all of the nations, all of the non-Christian, all of the, the non-Israelite nations, they all opposed God. They worshiped false gods. They wouldn't listen to God. They wouldn't submit to him. There, there's a big difference between opposition. These are God's people. 
These are God's children. These are the people who belonged, again, quote unquote, belonged to God. And yet the author of Hebrews is saying, these are the ones that didn't enter rest. They didn't make it to the end. These are the people who saw God's miracles. These are the people who saw God's power. These are the people who sat down for the Passover meal. These are the people who walked through the Red Sea on dry land. These are the people who saw God's power in unprecedented fashion, and yet they fell away. There's a verse in in Deuteronomy chapter four where God himself is speaking. He's like, has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by deeds of great terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. God himself is saying, has has anybody else uh, from the God world ever tried this? God's saying, "Look, look what I have done. Look how I have demonstrated my power. It's very interesting. When you read the Exodus story, The Exodus story is, yes, it is about God's people going free, but it is more about God proving that he is the one who's in charge of the whole earth. You go back and read the Exodus story, it's particularly fascinating when you look at the different plagues. Ten plagues, each one has some sort of connection to one of the Egyptian gods. The Egyptians worshipped lots of gods. They worshipped the Nile River. They, they viewed the Nile River as a god. And God says, yeah, you like that? You like that river? You think it's, they actually called it the lifeblood of Egypt. God goes, oh, you like, you like the Nile River? You think that's your lifeblood? How about I just turn it into blood? Oh, oh, you think that the sun is a God? You love, you love that sun? How about I just turn it dark for a few days? God is flexing his arm, this mighty hand and outstretched arm. It's a flexing. I'm gonna prove that I am God. I'm going to leave no room for dispute that I alone am the Lord. <clears throat> and yet what was the people's response? Hard-heartedness, Rebellion, stubbornness, refusal to listen. The people opposed God. They rebelled against God. What was God's response? There's two responses that God had. The first response that God had is patience. How many of you are thankful that our God is a patient God? How many of you are thankful that God is more patient than you are? If you go back to our verse in in Deuteronomy, who was, with whom was God provoked for 40 years? That's a patient God. They sinned, they rebelled, they opposed God, and yet his instant reaction was not to just wipe them out. I think you or I, you know, we're patient in varying degrees. We're not 40 years patient. How many of you have been rebelled against for 40 years? How many of you would put up with a rebellious employee in your workplace for 40 years? How many of you would put up with a rebellious child in your home for 40 years? Like, if they're still living at home at 40, we've got a serious problem, right? How many of you see the patience and goodness of God? That's his first reaction. I love that there's a verse that the apostle Peter writes where it's talking about the return of Jesus. Why Why is he taking so long to return? Why is he being slow? No, he's not being slow, Peter says, as some count slowness, but he's patient not wishing that any would perish, but that all would reach knowledge of salvation. God's a patient God because he wants to give us time to repent, to receive his grace, to receive his mercy, to receive his salvation. Our God is a patient God. Yet the second reaction is judgment. God has a a long fuse, so to speak, but it does not last forever. There is a point in time in which God pronounced a word of judgment on these people. They did not enter his rest. This promised land, this land that the the Bible speaks of as flowing with with milk and honey, that's kind of a a biblical uh, agricultural society way of saying, this is gonna be a good land. Our crops are gonna grow. We're gonna have animals there. It's gonna be a, a good place to dwell. We're coming out of slavery. We're going through the wilderness. We're gonna go into this land of milk and honey. We're gonna enter this place of promised rest. But because of their hardness of heart, because of their unbelief and because of their rebellion, God judged them and they did not receive his rest. This is serious stuff, church. One commentator, Ray Stedman, puts it this way. He says, these verses show 
how an outward facade of belief can be maintained while the heart is still unrepentant and therefore unredeemed. It is possible to participate in and benefit from the great miracles of God as the Israelites did who came out of Egypt with Moses, yet despite such evidence, the heart can remain unchanged for a lifetime. Pastor Aaron, are you saying that for us, there are people who go to church and know some Bible verses and on the outside look like they're good Christian people, but who aren't truly saved? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. We have to deal with the tragic reality that there are many who on the outside look like quote unquote, good Christian people who truly do not have hearts that have saving faith in Jesus Christ. People who have not truly trusted in Jesus' work on the cross where he died in their place for their sins. It's an outward facade of belief. You might say, well, well Pastor, and that's kind of mean. Why would, you, why would you say that? Why would you do that? Listen, early on in my uh, ministry, I had a, a pastoral mentor. We'd, we'd ask some questions and somebody asked a question, said, hey, what's like the most important thing? What's the number one most important thing that we should focus on as pastors? And this mentor looked at us and said, make sure that your people are saved. I wanna help you have better marriages. Yeah, I do. All of your elders would love for you to have better marriages. I would love for you to have better finances. I would love for you to have better communication and relational skills. But shame on me if I don't stand up here every single week and tell you that the most important thing that you need to hear is the message of the grace of God revealed in Christ Jesus. And it's particularly important for us as Westerners, as Americans, because unlike places in the Middle East where it's pretty clear, you're either a Christian or you're a Muslim or you're whatever, the lines are drawn very clearly. In America, we have these kind of moralistic religious sort of roots where people think I'm a Christian because I wouldn't check the Jewish or Hindu or atheist box on the census form. We have to be very clear. Being a Christian is not just being a good person. Being a Christian does not mean admiring the teachings of Jesus. Being a Christian does not mean even just participating in the life of the church. No, being a Christian means that you have despaired of your own efforts to save yourself and you've thrown yourself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ and you've said he is my only hope in life or in death. That's what being a Christian is. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to upset anyone. I'm trying to tell you even these hard truths that the Bible tells us because I love you and I have no deeper concern to make sure that anyone I have the opportunity to teach is saved. I want you to be saved. I want you to be a Christian. The point, by the way, is not that we would then go around saying, well, let's see who's saved and who's not. Show up at community group, probably not saved, probably not saved, definitely saved. They make good cookies, right? That's not the point. That is not the point. <laughs> God is responsible for that. You know what our responsibility is? Our responsibility is to not take the salvation, the grace that we have received lightly. To not just assume, yeah, I prayed a prayer one time, so I'm good. Amen? That's our responsibility. Our responsibility is to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Now, there is assurance. There is hope. There is joy to be had. I don't want anyone to leave here today fearful and doubting their salvation. That's not the point, but... The word of God calls us to examine ourselves. The word of God gives us these negative examples of people whose hearts remained unchanged for a lifetime despite walking with God, despite walking with his people. We have to be very careful. Now, there's also something that's really helpful for us. And it comes from verse 14. And, and this is something I hope that will be framing for us for the rest of our time together in the book of Hebrews, frankly, for the rest of our time together forever. It's this verse 314. It says this, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
Uh, that actually reminds me of a verse we covered two weeks ago in, in verse six, where it says that, uh, it says, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This, this holding fast our confidence, it's talking about the day of salvation. It's talking about the day when you made a decision to follow Jesus. On that day, you had some confidence in Jesus. You said, you know what? I'm a sinner. I have, I have sinned against a holy God. I'm in need of his grace. I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he, rose again for my salvation. I'm placing my confidence. I'm placing my faith. I'm placing my trust in Jesus, our original confidence. Both of these verses are very interesting though. When you see the way that they, they, the verbs in particular are used, we have come past tense to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Do, do you guys see how kind of an unusual sentence structure that is? Not, not we will become his house if we hold fast to the end. And not if you stop holding fast, you're going to get kicked out of the house. No, no, no. Holding fast to the end proves that we have come to share in Christ. This is, this is a, a, a term that I've coined. I've never heard it used anywhere else. It's not heretical. It's very biblical, I promise you. But this idea of three-dimensional salvation three-dimensional salvation. I even wrote a paper on this for one of my classes uh, in Hebrews this summer, and I got a good grade, so I know it's okay, all right? <clears throat> this idea of three-dimensional salvation, think of it this way. When we talk about salvation, we often talk about salvation in the past tense. Whether that's when we talk about Jesus or we talk about ourselves. We talk about ourselves, we say things like, I got saved, you know, on such and such a date. I became a Christian last week, or whatever it might be. We talk about it in the past tense. Or if we talk about Jesus, we talk about, you know, he saved me 2,000 years ago when he died on that cross. It's in the past. That's a very common way to talk about salvation. It's, frankly, it's a very biblical. There's, there's verses like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, one of the greatest verses on salvation. It says, for by grace you have been, past tense, saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Or earlier in Hebrews, we saw this, you know, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Salvation is something that takes place in the past. Amen? That's a very good and a very healthy, a very biblical way to speak about salvation. However, my opinion is that far too many Christians only speak of salvation in the past tense, whereas the Bible speaks of it in the present and the future. For example, present tense, 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and this verse would take a lot of time to explain. I just want you to see the way he speaks of this. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. What he's saying is, if you're a Christian, uh, it's a pleasing smell to God as you are being saved. Present tense, you are being saved. How many of you know that as Christians, you are right now being saved? You were saved, you are being saved. Uh, Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13, this is also the Apostle Paul writing, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Working out your salvation. It's not just a past tense, I prayed a prayer. No, there's a working it out. There's an ongoing active sense in which you are working out this being saved thing. Or Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, Jesus, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I can't wait to teach on that in like four years when we get to Hebrews chapter 10. But that idea, like, Jesus, at one time, you have been perfected. You are declared righteous, and yet you're still being sanctified. You're still being saved. You're still being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So salvation is past. Salvation is present. And salvation is future. Didn't see that one coming, did you? Romans 5, 9, back to the Apostle Paul, he says this, since therefore we have now, past tense, been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You will be saved. Or, again, coming up in Hebrews, Hebrews 9, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. He already did that. 
He already dealt with sin on the cross, but to save those, he will appear to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The Bible clearly teaches that a day is coming in which Christ Jesus, the resurrected Savior, will return every eye will see him, every ear will hear him, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that will be a day of judgment where those who have placed their trust in Christ Jesus will stand before him and the, the verdict is already not guilty. Enter into my rest. He's gonna look at you and he's gonna say things like, well done, my good and faithful servant. And there will be others who he will say, depart from me for I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And they'll be cast out into utter darkness, what the Bible calls hell. There is a day coming, a really important day where we want to be saved from, amen? We want to be saved in the future, the day when Christ Jesus returns to judge, as the old King James would say, the quick and the dead, the living and the dead. That's the day, that's the day where salvation really matters. I would submit to you that the author of Hebrews if you look through it, he really emphasizes this future aspect of salvation, maybe more than a lot of the other biblical writers. He really talks a lot about the day of future judgment and the day of salvation coming in the future. We need to think biblically. We need to think all three perspectives when it comes to salvation. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved on the day of the return of Christ Jesus. Let's go back to our, our verse again, verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Again, just look at, look at what he's not saying. He doesn't say, if you hold on to the end, then you'll be saved. He says, if you hold firm to the end, you have been saved. Not you will be saved, you have been he doesn't say, if you don't hold firm to the end, you've lost something that you had. You were a Christian, now you've lost it. You've lost your salvation. So, no, he says, you have come. Sometimes it's helpful just to put a couple of knots in there. We have not come to share in Christ if indeed we do not hold our original confidence firm to the end. Here's the point. True salvation is proven by a lifetime of faithfulness to Jesus. It's not what saves you, it's what proves that you have come to share in Christ Jesus. Do you see that difference, church? This is so important for us. It's so important for us. How do we know that someone is truly saved? By watching them persevere and make it to the very end. Persevering proves genuine faith. Now, when I say that word perseverance, some of you more theologically astute hearers today will know that that term uh, has come to take on some meaning over the centuries. There's actually a, a variety of terms. This is some theology, some theological work here. There's a variety of terms that have, that have come to, to kind of express this truth about genuine Christians making it to the end. One of those terms is the perseverance of the saints. How many of you are familiar with the term perseverance of the saints, okay? It's particularly popular in, in more reformed sort of traditions. And if you don't know what that means, Pastor Shane will be staying late today to ask, answer all your questions, right? Reformed circles love to talk about the perseverance of the saints. And, and this emphasizes the, the responsibility that we have as Christians to persevere, if you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to persevere. Amen? James chapter one, it talks about it. You know, uh, let the testing of your faith produce steadfastness or perseverance. It's the same word in the Greek. Let your steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You gotta, you gotta persevere. You gotta go through hard things. You have, to, you have to be steadfast through them all. This emphasizes our responsibility to walk closely with Jesus. Some people like to use this other term though, the preservation of the saints. How many of you heard the preservation of the saints? You familiar with that? And they would emphasize, right, but it's, it's God who works in us to keep us to the very end. We're gonna persevere because God's the one keeping us. Like, like we just read in, in Philippians where it talks about work out your salvation for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. John chapter six, Jesus says things like, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of those he's given to me. 
Or John chapter 10, he says, I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Oh, isn't that comforting? Isn't that reassuring to know that as hard as you strive, as much as you work on persevering, ultimately Jesus is the one who's holding you in his hand. And if you belong to him, you ain't gonna be, you ain't gonna be taken out. That's good, right? That's so good. Perseverance of the saints, helpful. Preservation of the saints, helpful. There's another term, eternal security. This idea that, that you can have assurance of faith. You can know that you are secure in Christ eternally. Verses like Romans 8, 38, where the apostle Paul says, I'm sure that death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that can separate us from God's love. Or 1 John 3, where, where the apostle John is writing, he says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. How many of you want to have that reassurance of your heart before God? Listen, I have talked to uh, quite a few of you who have said that you grew up in, in one various church tradition or another where you felt like if you, if you ever sinned, that you, you all of a sudden didn't know if you were saved anymore. I had a conversation with one woman a few months back where she talked about having to get saved and baptized like six times. You know, some of you, you know, you're afraid like if you, if you said one swear word, you'd be damned to hell. Oh, whoops. Right? Just this, this absolute insecurity of who am I? Where do I stand with God? If I do anything bad, am I, am I not saved anymore? Do I, do I have God's grace anymore? What do I need to do to earn God's grace and God's favor? No, the idea of eternal security is beautiful. Because it says that Jesus Christ died not just for the sins that you did commit, but the ones you don't even realize you're about to commit. Jesus paid it all. Jesus covered all. You can have eternal security. That's a helpful term. There's another one that comes up in the same conversation. Once saved, always saved. And what this is trying to emphasize is this idea that if you really are a Christian, you're gonna remain a Christian through your whole life. And I get that. Here's my opinion. This is just Aaron's opinion. I think that phrase is really unhelpful and possibly even misleading. Because for a lot of people, what it, what it means, what it communicates is, yep, went to the conference, prayed the prayer, signed the card, I'm good. I can just do whatever I want. I can just, I can just live however I want to. For a lot of people, it's like, yeah, I, I bought my fire insurance. I'm good. I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the, the intention, right? In fact, that's some people's fear when you start talking about preservation of the saints. You start talking about eternal security. Some people actually would, would, pack, would push back and say, you know, Aaron, hey, if you start telling people that their salvation is secure, if you start telling people that they're, they're genuinely saved and they're going to make it to the end, aren't they going to go out and just live like hell? Aren't they going to go out and just do whatever they want to do? To which I would say, no. Because if they're truly a Christian and they hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, their response is going to be, I want to please Jesus. If you're a Christian, your deepest desire is, I want to please God. He has shown me grace. He has loved me. How could I, how could I rebel against the one who saved my soul? In fact, I would go so far as to say, if your reaction to hearing this good news of the gospel of Jesus is sweet, I get to go do whatever I want, then you know nothing of the gospel and you know nothing of Jesus. One commentator, R.L. Dabney, I came across this week, says this way, we say the fact that this deluded man can live in willful sin is the strongest possible proof that he was never justified and never had any grace to fall from. Once for all, no intelligent believer can possibly abuse this doctrine into a pretext for carnal security, meaning I can live however I want. It promises to true believers a perseverance in holiness. Who except an idiot could infer from that promise the privilege to be unholy? If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch, right? I just found the quote. I'm just sharing it with you. It seemed like something you might be interested in hearing, right? It is foolishness to say God saved me. God forgave me. I have grace. I'm going to go do whatever I want. No. God's grace is so amazing. How would we want to, to spurn that? How would we want to, to turn away from him? The one who saved my soul, the God who, who didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up as an offering for me, for you. 
That's a good God. That's a good offer, amen? amen? One other question that sometimes comes up around this is, can a true Christian experience a season of, of falling away or backsliding? Can, can somebody who is truly a Christian have a, a period of time where maybe they're not walking with the Lord? I would say the answer to that from the Bible is yes, but never for long. Never for long. Do genuine Christians, genuine believers in Jesus sometimes experience a season where they, they wander? They, they pierce themselves with many pangs, as the Apostle Paul would say? Yeah. But we're going to get in Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to get into the idea of the Father's loving discipline. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. When we, when we stray, when we get errant, when we get off, the Lord brings discipline back into the lives of his children, into the lives of true believers, so that their periods of wandering are, are never for forever. I, I, just think about, like, I think about the apostle Peter. If you're ever feeling discouraged about your own Christian walk, just think about Peter. He's very encouraging. This is the one who walked closely with Jesus for three years, saw the miracles, all of that, and yet on the night of, of Jesus' arrest and betrayal, he had not one but two colossal failures. First, he pulled out a sword and attacked the soldiers, and Jesus is like, put the sword away. If you live by the sword, you're gonna die by the sword. This has to happen. Whoa, Jesus got reprimanded by Jesus in front of the whole crowd. But then later that night, he's so fearful, he's so embarrassed, he actually denies Jesus. He denies his faith in Jesus. He denies knowing him. By the way, like just so we're clear, that's, that's not just any old sin, right? That is denying his savior. And yet Jesus restored him. Jesus brought discipline into his life and Peter came running back and it was a beautiful moment. Genuine Christians can have a season where they, maybe they wander, but I believe that the scripture would show us the pattern of our heavenly fathers to never let his, his sheep wander for long. So, let's go back to verse 12 and see how we're to live this out. How are we to persevere? How are we to, to make it to the end? Verse 12 says this, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. That's encouraging and calling to action and speaking the truth in love. That's what that word exhort means. Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Look at, look at, look at a couple of these, these specific instructions. The first one is this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. You want to know how to persevere to the end? The first thing is to check your heart. Check your heart. Don't check your actions. Don't check the externals. Check your heart. We spent a long time looking at that last week. If you, if you uh, weren't here last week, we, we talked a lot about hard heart versus soft heart. I want to encourage you to maybe go to the website and listen to that teaching that we did last week. Check your heart. Take care, brothers, He's speaking to Christians. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. How many of you know that in parts of your heart, there's evil and there's unbelief? How many of you know that God wants to continue to do that work of salvation, that work of sanctification in your heart and in your life? Check your heart. Number two, know that sin is deceitful. Check your heart so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Think about that phrase, the deceitfulness of sin. Sin looks really attractive. The Bible even admits that, that sin is pleasurable for a season, the fleeting pleasures of sin. But like, like a, a fish who, who just sees the bait and ignores the hook, or like an, an animal who just sees the, the bait and they don't see the trap, we get ensnared in sin. Sin is deceitful. You know, the, the world is a dangerous place. We've seen terrorist attacks this week. We've seen shootings in recent months where, where people who are Christian specifically are targeted. It is possible that you or that I may face one day a, a gun to the head, you know, deny Jesus or die kind of a moment. That's a possible danger that we may face. We may face that. But do you know what danger you will face before you even leave here today? the deceitfulness of sin. 
That is a danger that we can guarantee that the enemy will want to bring into our lives to cause our hearts to grow cold and to grow hard. Watch out. Sin is deceptive. Some of you have areas of sin in your life and you're self-deceived. You say, oh, I put up with it because it makes me feel good or it's not that bad. Or, well, yeah, if you, know what my, if you know what my sister was doing, you wouldn't judge me. We never get to excuse sin by pointing to somebody else's worst sin. Amen? Sin is deceitful. I need you to know that. It tricks us. Which brings me to my third point of application, which is you need one another. Verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Not to put it uh, maybe too hyperbolically, if you do not have deep relationships with other Christians who could look you in the eyes and say, I think you're being deceived by sin, I do not give you much chance of making it to the end. Can I say it that bluntly? If you don't have Christian community, I, don't, I wouldn't bet on you. The Christian life is not a solo sport. The Christian life is a community activity. God is going to use his people to help you persevere. God is going to use his people to help you make it to the end. Exhort one another every day. Some of us have this mistaken idea that the more Christ-like I become, the more mature I become, the less I need other people. That's simply not true. We actually need God's people more and more and more the longer we follow him. If you're not part of community, I'm just pleading with you, be a part of community, be a part of God's people. There's areas in your life where you have blind spots. You need God's people. Exhort, speaking truth in love, challenging, comforting, encouraging saying, hey, have you thought about this? Hey, have you seen this? Let me speak this, this truth into your life as long as it is called today. As long as it is called today. Check your heart. Know that sin is deceitful. And please invest in relationships, deep relationships with other Christians where you can open up and talk about the real stuff of life. Like I said, I, I have deep concern that each of us makes it to the end. That each of us makes it to the end. I had, um, I had an opportunity a few weeks ago to sit, sit down with a gentleman, part of this church. He's been given a, a, a terminal diagnosis. The doctors are saying weeks, maybe months left to live. Been battling cancer. And we sat in my office. We had a, a conversation about you know, maybe doing his end-of-life celebration at some point here. And, um, which is an odd experience, by the way, for both of us. What I told him then, I share it with you now, as I said, look, you have a bit of a gift here because you're dying and you know it. So many of us, we don't know when we're gonna take our last breath and we're not aware of it in light of the fact that we're not guaranteed to wake up tomorrow morning, church, I ask you, how will you respond to Jesus today? How will you respond to Jesus today? Who are those people in your lives who, who you know that seem to be wandering away? Are, are, you, are you being patient, long-suffering with them? Like, God, are you praying for them? Are you using every opportunity you have to speak the truth and love to them? How is God asking you to respond God, you're searching our hearts even right now. God, this is a, a, a challenging word. It's a heavy word. We need to hear it. God, each and every day, we'll, we will be tempted by the deceitfulness of sin. Each and every day, we we do have the possibility of having our hearts hardened before you. And so God, I'm just asking and praying right now for all of those who are within earshot of my voice. God, would you strengthen us, help us persevere to the end. God, for those, our family members who we, who we love, uh, friends who maybe are wandering, God, would you help us to, to love them? God, would you even use us to speak the truth to them? And God, now as we enter into a time of response, I pray that we would respond from our hearts, 
God, would you comfort and assure those who are really your children, God? And God, for those who maybe have even convinced themselves that they're Christians just because they try to be a good person, God, would you help them to see the difference between a good person and a saved person? Pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna enter into a time of response now, church. The first way we're gonna respond is to the giving of our tithes and offerings. I'd like to invite the financial stewards to come forward now if they would. Uh, As we give, let's give out of hearts of worship and gratitude to Jesus. And while they're collecting the offering, let me go over a few discussion questions for us um, to talk about this week in our, our groups and in our homes. Number one, in what ways are we encouraged to think of ourselves like the Israelites in the wilderness after the exodus? Ben can go ahead and get in position too, if you would. We're gonna begin our time here. Number two, read John 6, 37 through 40, John 10, 27 through 30, and Romans 8, 31 through 39. Give you guys a little bit of homework to read. As we persevere in our faith, how can we grow in our confidence that God will preserve us to the end? It's one of those both and tensions that I love to, love to highlight. Yes, we gotta persevere. Yes, God is gonna preserve us to the end. Number three, as we discussed salvation in three dimensions, was any of this new or surprising for you? And how can we help one another think more biblically about salvation? And then number four, how is God prompting you to be more intentional in your faith and to be more intentional in the faith of your Christian brothers and sisters? Think about this. Some of you, you know, when you're weighing, oh, do we go to community group this week or not? Some of you need to remember it's not only for your own benefit, but God wants to use you to help somebody else persevere to the end. Think about that responsibility that he gives to us. Isn't that amazing? So how can we be intentional in the lives of others? How can we be intentional in our own life? A couple things to pray about. Pray for yourself and your community that we would all persevere in our faith and then pray for any individuals you know who are not currently walking with God that that he would draw them back to himself in love. And today I've spoken a lot to to Christians because that's the thrust of this passage is to those of you who are believers who who are called to persevere. But if any of you are here today and you're not a Christian, you've never given your life to Jesus I want to invite you today to give your life to Jesus, to pray a prayer. I mean, it could be a very simple prayer. I mentioned my dad earlier. His, his very simple prayer was, God, I've ruined my life and made a hopeless mess of it. If you want it, you can have it. Real eloquent, right? Sounds like it was right out of the, you know, book of common prayer or something, right? Whatever it is that you need to pray to acknowledge your sin before God and then to, to, to receive his grace, I encourage you to pray that prayer. We're gonna celebrate the Lord's table. We're gonna celebrate communion, which reminds us of Jesus' broken body with the bread and his, his, his spilled out blood with the wine or the juice. And I encourage you to, to pray. If you're not a Christian, God, would you want me to join them at the table today to become a Christian, to give my sin to you and, and come forward for the first time as a Christian and celebrate the Lord's table? If you're a guest or a visitor, if you're a Christian, you're welcome to join us at the table. And we're gonna sing. Sean and this team is gonna lead us in some songs of of celebration of the grace of God that we have received. And so I invite you, church, today to let your worship be made heard. Let your worship come pouring out of your heart out of gratitude and love and thanksgiving to the God who has given us everything in Christ Jesus. Church, let's stand and I'll pray for our, our time of response. God, we thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. We thank you, God, that even though we all have periods of hard-heartedness or wandering or rebellion, God, that your consistent uh, posture towards us is one of patience and love and grace. God, I pray for my Christian brothers and sisters here, God, I pray we would all make it. I pray we would all make it to the end. We would persevere to the day we take our last breath or to the day that you return, Christ Jesus. God, if there's anyone here today who is not a believer, if there's anyone here who, who doesn't have saving faith in Jesus, I pray you'd, you'd give them that gift today, Lord God, and we get to rejoice as, as new brothers and sisters are adopted into the family. And I thank you, God, that, that your love for us is not contingent upon our actions, but it's contingent upon Christ Jesus, and it's him we celebrate now. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.